I wanted to talk to you today about this idea of gospel suffering. That is, how, how is it that the gospel uh, applies to real life? Many times uh, we debate theological points, arguments, systems, and it, it can be the case that we think about God as an idea or our faith is, is sectioned off to a realm of concepts that do not impact our emotions and the way that we live. It's my opinion that the scriptures plainly teach that the way to live your life by faith is to have it be informed by the gospel, not just as an idea, but that that is a functional reality for you. That when you hear someone say, Jesus Christ died on your behalf, you don't just know it, you can feel it. You know that it's true. You have a certain certainty uh, with which you apprehend and, and hold on to that doctrine. And in our lives, there are times when you and I go through things that we don't want to go through necessarily. Uh, I'm mindful of, of um, many people that I've known who've gone as missionaries to other countries, who've encountered persecution. Certainly those are the types of sufferings that Paul is talking about. But I think the scripture, especially in the New Testament, concerning sufferings is not just limited to persecution for the faith. It, is, it, include, it, it includes that, but it also contains all of the suffering, all of the emotional upheaval, all of the dying to self that is part of the Christian's walk. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross. Jesus is saying that if you wish to be a disciple, if you wish to be a Christian, you will have to at some point begin to bear your cross in such a way that it will hurt you. It will diminish your life in, in the things that are external. But at the same time, Jesus also teaches, take upon me, come Learn from me, all you who are weary and humble or low in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, how is it possible that Jesus can say to his disciples with any sort of honesty that the yoke of Jesus Christ is light and uh, easy? It is only possible if that weight, the weight of his yoke, is offset by a lever which has its fulcrum in the heavenly things. That is, the only way that Jesus Christ's yoke, which has to be placed upon you as a believer, it is of necessity that trials will come, that yoke can only be endured, you can only go through it by having your heart anchored in the glory that exists through God and through his gospel. And so that's what I want to hopefully illustrate today. Um, one precursor before we get started, I'm not saying that you should go looking for sufferings, nor am I saying that every uh, suffering that you have is to be just gone through and that God doesn't wish to bring healing, deliverance, uh, release from, from certain things. I maintain, teach, and seek out miracles, healings, divine interventions, and terrible situations, and I believe that we should pray for them. But when the answer doesn't come. This is what I've found for, for teachers who only preach health, wealth, and, and faith. That is, just believe more, believe better, renounce the wrong things, believe the right things. At the end of the day, if the answer doesn't come, how do you make it through? That is a theology that you need to have 
even if you believe in miracles for today, which we of course do. It is my, uh, that opinion is founded in the fact that Paul is arguably uh, the greatest apostle uh, in the New Testament writings, at least, if not in the whole history of the church, who moved in more miracles, signs, and wonders than are recorded of the other apostles. Although tradition maintains that apostles did amazing things, Paul's uh, ministry through signs and wonders were miraculous and, and very powerful. Yet, as we're going to see today, Paul suffered immensely for the gospel. And in that, he maintained a heart of faith. And that's what I hope to explore today. So in exploring that, I want to look at five different dimensions of this passage. I want to look at Jesus Christ's relationship to the creation. I want to look at the uh, parallelism that Paul writes in this poem to the resurrection and eschatology, that is, uh, where is all of this going? Where is all of existence going? Why were we made? Why was the earth created. With connection to that, Paul then takes those ideas and plugs them in, if you will, to the the believers who are at Colossae and connects it to the cross of Christ and their revealed reconciliation. That is, for Paul, the doctrines which he is espousing in the first half of this passage become concrete realities that have actually come to pass in people's lives. They're not ideas written in a systematic theology textbook alone. They are ideas and a message and God being a person acting through his people, bringing the gospel to others who are transformed by the light through faith. And so that, with that in mind, uh, we are then, that's, a, that's kind of a precursor or a base of foundation for what Paul then connects to that being how he goes through sufferings and the entire reason uh, that he is an apostle. So with those five uh, topics kind of being our our structure for today, uh, let's dive in for the text. Paul first describes the person of Jesus, touching on the aspects of his divinity with regard to both his bearing the image of God as well as his uh, role in creation. And these are absolutely breathtaking doctrines if you begin to Uh, sense them or touch them. In Genesis 1, we see God making man. What does God say in Genesis 1? Let us make man according to our image. But here in Colossians 1.15, Paul says that he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And so if, if God is making human beings after his image, yet he himself is invisible, what is Paul saying? What is Paul realizing through the incarnation and work of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ is the prototype or first form, if you will, for all of humanity. And that is not to say that eternally he possessed his human body, uh, but rather that Jesus Christ in his person is the structure and pattern for and end goal for all of humanity. The word firstborn in this passage, the firstborn of all creation, does not mean at all that there was a time when Christ did not exist. Um, That's a a tricky phrase sometimes, but it simply means that Christ is the prototype for all mankind, and in a hierarchical order, or if you think about an an organization chart or a chart of, of sources, Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made, is the heir of all creation. 
that is all creation was done through him as it says uh in another place and for him by him through him so that all things would exist to his glory and with that regard he's the firstborn he has the right to receive creation as his inheritance uh in hebrew culture to connect both the the greek philosophy and the hebrew nature here of what paul's saying in the the phrase the firstborn of all creation he's the firstborn in a house received all of the blessing of a father as he uh dispensed or you know was retiring or moving on to his death as he blessed his children he gave the entire share of his material possessions and goods to his firstborn while while all his sons while all his other sons had to to work for uh their material goods and in this way paul is saying not only is jesus christ the prototype for all of creation but he himself is the heir he he owns all of the creation the next verse for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him jesus christ is the person through whom god by the holy spirit is creating you can think of it kind of like a, a pipe going through a um uh, a system or a coolant that is uh, god the father did not create creation apart from the son or apart from the holy spirit but rather all of the trinity father son and spirit cooperated in the original creation and so with that in mind paul is saying jesus christ the god man is not just stepping into time and starting to exist he was before time he was before the creation and he himself was part of the creation it's easy to prove the uh first uh postulate that the firstborn of all creation does not mean that Jesus was uh born or began to exist at a time uh, certainly he was born in his incarnation but he he did not begin to exist he along with the father and the spirit eternally existed from all time and there's just a little logic that you need to have uh working in your philosophy uh or or rational thinking all things were created through Christ a being cannot create itself therefore Christ is not a created being this is a powerful tool to disarm all of the so-called cults uh Christian cults that exist the Mormons the Jehovah's Witness um other the various modalists etc the the way in which Jesus Christ reveals himself as God through his incarnation is done in such a way that the gospel writers have plainly made clear that Jesus did not begin to exist at one time and so in Paul's world Christ is not content uh, Christianity and and the message of of God is not contending just against Judaism or just against uh a uh, a former faith that was based on uh following God's God's Torah and being the people of God, Christianity is also contending against the Roman culture, that is their the way that they structured their lives, but Christianity is also contending against all of Greek philosophy. And this is massively important for us as college students when we are taking time to go through philosophy classes, communica- communication classes, uh different logic and analytic classes. I remember this being an anchor for my soul when I took a logic class in my computer science program which was all based on aristotelian and platonic uh logic 
these philosophies have an opinion about nature, reality, how it all came to be. And Paul, in this passage, is smashing those philosophies with the truth of God. The philosophers, <clears throat> if, you, um, if you remember the, the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word of God. That, that phrase word means logos or logos. And, and that phrase is a very hard uh, idea. Or it's a very hard word to translate into English because um, we don't have the same kind of uh, thinking structures as Greek does. But in Greek, the idea of the logos was that there was this thing that was the prototype of all other things. Uh, Plato, many of you have heard of Plato, not Plato, just like it's Socrates, not Socrates. Uh, Plato was one of the, the, you know, sort of founder of the philosophers, or at least one of their most prominent figures. And in this, Plato had an idea about reality. Plato saw material things, the material world, as really low and base and unimportant and really um, dirty. And, and that the philosophers who were seeking to attain wis wisdom were attempting to escape from those things. And so Plato saw the realm of ideas and forms as the highest things in the, the created order or the order of reality. And in this, Plato had a doctrine called the uh, theory of forms, or, the, or what's commonly known as idealism. That is, there is this form, a divine form, and all other things that we see uh, are come from this form. And in the realm of ideas or forms, there are uh, pure essences or pure beings or pure things which are the substance or the pattern from which all other things are made. For example, if you have a table, um, we, you and I, we see tables in the world. There's a table, our altar. It has two pillars and four feet and a, a surface on which you can then put a tablecloth and you can put other things on. And that is a table. But for Plato, this is not perfect. This is just a table. And by observing all the other tables in the world, we can get some sort, sort of notion of tableness. Or, to take a, a better example, with humans, I look at you, I observe things about you, you have limbs, you have hair, you have a body, you have a face, you can speak, you can hear, you can run around, you're strong, you, you have creative powers, but in my view of you, I do not see humanity, I just see a human. And for Plato, the true reality, what he needed to really become wise, to really become who he was as a human being, Plato needed to apprehend and attain a knowledge of the pure being and pure form. Now, this is a massive philosophical framework, which all of Western society is arguably based on, uh, of course, reinterpreted through Christ and by the church throughout the years. But Plato had this other idea that not only is there this form, but there is this ob objective, uh, depersonalized good. Not a force, but an idea. That is, there's good things and there's bad things, but not only are there good things and bad things, there is this thing called the good, just like we talked about the word. And for Plato, he saw the nature of reality and came to this idea that the good created all things through the different forms, uh, starting with the form. 
And this is remarkably similar in some ways to the way that Christians view the nature of reality. But Paul comes in and drops some atomic bombs on their system of wisdom. Instead of a principal good, we have the Father God as a creator. It's not a principle or an abstract idea. God himself is a person. And God himself as a person created the creation for good purposes, not just as low and base things which needed to be avoided or uh, reasoned out of as Plato tried. But not only is there God, the forms themselves are not things, but rather the form himself is a person, Jesus Christ, the prototype for all of creation. And because of this, because because of this philosophical structure, Plato basically reasons that all wisdom, all logic, all knowledge, all truth comes from the higher realm, and it is by accessing the higher realm through our reasoning processes that we can attain truth. But Paul comes in and says, the higher realm is not ideas, but are the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, he then makes this statement, Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying that the very systems of language, logic, reason are maintained by the structure uh, not of logic itself or the natural laws themselves, but rather are maintained by, in, and through Jesus Christ. And therefore, all knowledge is a knowledge by interacting with a person, not reasoning about an idea. There, for Paul, there is absolutely no reason, logic, wisdom, or understanding apart from Christ. And this has massive implications for his world in that day. You and I, we exist in a very similar uh, situation to the, the early church. Out there in the world today, uh, to, to make it sound real bad, is a group of people who believe in, who staunchly believe in only the existence of subjective truth. That is, what's true for me, what I've learned and experienced is my truth, and you have different experiences which you know to be true, and that by sharing and communicating and dialoguing, me tolerating you, you tolerating me, we can somehow come to the truth together. Paul absolutely smashes this idea and says that all truth ultimately comes from the person of truth, Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this, his role as creation is the fundamental, his role in the creation is the fundamental stone on which Paul then asserts that all truth is coming from God. Not from the realm of ideas, not from the realm of forms. Yes, you and I can can look at things out in the world and make true observations and clear uh understandings or, or uh, insights into certain matters, but those merely reflect the design of the Creator. And with this, uh, then Paul marries to this idea the death and resurrection of Christ. In this poem that Paul's constructing, he mirrors Christ's role in creation with what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Uh, and he is the head of the body, Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, he is the beginning is obviously mirrored with, he is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. And then the next phrase, the firstborn from the dead, is tied to and repeating and developing the phrase, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is not, as, as such, he's not just the head over all creation, but also the head over all God's new creation, that is, the church, the people of God. 
And through the resurrection, Christ has not only become the prototype of those who were born uh, in the, through their heritage, obtaining the image of God through uh, God's creation of Adam, but also he, he now is their prototype in the way they are which to be resurrected. These two ideas being married together for Paul constitute Jesus Christ being uh, the the uh, prototype or, or, if you will, head of all things, which he then continues to say. Notice how this touches Genesis 1, as we've already mentioned. God creates mankind in his image, but the prototype of Christ is also incorporated into that. So what this tells us about God's intention and desire for his creation, it's not... It's not just a uh, system of events that happened. There, we're not just merely recording that God, yes, did this at some time, and he just set the world in motion and, and has let it go on. God's desire, his intention for creation, is understood to be that we would have communion, redemption, through the Son, Jesus Christ. That not only are we created after the image of God and the image of Christ, we also are recreated after his image, and therefore he is said to be the firstborn or the prototype of those from the dead, that is, those who obtain resurrection. So in this amazingly deep theological water, uh, Paul then connects the cross of Christ. We've talked about creation, we've talked about death and resurrection, and now Paul just kind of, it's as if he's just putting bookends on an idea. He brings in the cross of Christ. Paul continues this exposition on the glory of the Son of God by incorporating the incarnation and death of the cro- on the cross. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God, the incomparable, inexhaustible, uncontainable, without bound, eternal God, dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is a massive mystery, which Paul then connects to the heart of God. And through that dwelling, God has reconciled creation to himself. It's not as if God is just doing this for an arbitrary reason. God in Christ is reconciling the world. Colossians 1.20, it says, And through him, that is God through Jesus Christ, uh, to reconcile to himself, to, to God the Father, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Do you see that creation language again? Whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. What Paul is saying is that the atonement which was accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ is the summation and completion of the original goal of creation. Paul has re-understood Genesis as to be a beginning step in which God is unraveling and, and revealing his purposes, and through that, he has demonstrated uh, himself as righteous through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, this, admittedly, as I said earlier, is super deep water, theologically speaking. Um, we are touching stuff that seems really esoteric, seems kind of boring sometimes. Admittedly, it's it's often hard to understand what what Paul is saying in these phrases, what every everything that he's implying in these phrases. But this is what Paul is talking about. And, and this is why Paul, earlier in this chapter, is praying for the church at Colossae to have spiritual wisdom and understanding for the reason that they need it to live their life. Paul needs no bridge. He wastes no time kind of dancing around the gospel. He immediately connects it to what's happened 
with the Colossians. He explains their salvation as a direct result of these realities. Skipping, without skipping a beat, he then goes on to say, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God's goal is to present you holy and blameless. That is to say, God's goal is that you would be a mature representation of his son, Jesus. <clears throat> the father and son were participating in the reconciliation of those who have turned away, and this is the gospel itself. We, you and I, both, both of us, all of us, we were hostile to God at one point. We were alienated from him and separated from him. We didn't have a relationship with God. We invented false doctrines and false ideas about God that were hostile to his nature, his ways, his heart. And these, and we were actively creating idols out of both the created things and idols out of other people, success, relationships, significance, etc. And in this context, while we were still sinning, while we were still sinners, it, Paul says that God has reconciled us to him through his son Jesus. That is amazing hope. Though we were God's creation, we were rebelling against his purpose entirely for our entire life and existence. We were therefore sinning. See, sin is not just a code that God arbitrarily created. God is a God of love who desired to create you and make you in such a way that you would be his and he could communicate to you and he could love you and, and lead you in the path of righteousness and give you existence, your very existence and 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 nature being a gift from God itself, and yet you ran away from God and invented terrible ideas about him. And not only that, served idols, not, not worshiping God with your heart. And the gospel is that although that was taking place, he reconciled you to himself in that moment. Now, the hope of the gospel as I just said, is that God justifies the ungodly, that at the time that they are sinners, at the time that they are ungodly, at the time that you and I are rec are running away from God, he is pulling us to himself and he's reconciling us to himself. Now, the question, of course, is have you really placed your hope in the life of Christ? Are you included in that we? Or are you included in the you who once were alienated, who once were alienated? Do you know for certain that you have placed your hope and faith in Christ Jesus? Have you seen Jesus Christ on the cross? Have you apprehended with eyes of faith? Uh, have you seen Jesus bearing the weight of your own sin and guilt, dying in your stead and in your place? And have you encountered the power of that freedom that comes from hearing that message? Or are you merely attempting to live a religious life. See, you can attend church and be uh, running from God. Are you merely coming to church day by day, week by week, to appease your conscience? It's possible to be in the midst of God's presence around God's things and, you ever, and yet never truly place your trust in Christ. What it means to place your trust in Christ is to abandon all self-effort at attempting righteousness and performing righteousness before God. Paul makes it clear that while we were alienated from God, he reconciled us. And this is the theology, this gospel is at the heart of how Paul says he makes it through his sufferings. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Have you ever heard a phrase in scripture and been totally perplexed? I would say that this is one of the more confusing verses in the New Testament, if not in the top 10. How in the world is Paul saying, that he's suffering, and these sufferings are doing amazing things. These sufferings that Paul's going through, they're not like you and I suffer, or maybe you have suffered for the faith. Uh, one or two times I've been, a, you know, mocked and, and, you know, ridiculed for advocating Christianity, arguing for the faith, but I've never been through what Paul's been through. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, when he's arguing with the Corinthians about his authority with them, he says that five separate occasions he received 39 lashes. The reason it wasn't 40 was it was considered that on the 40th lash he would be killed, that that would be the final straw that broke your back, if you will. Three times he was beaten with rods. These aren't like sticks. These are probably bats or long poles, probably the, the poles that the temple guards used to hold. <clears throat> Three different times he survived a shipwreck, he went through perils and hungers, thirst without shelter. I hate swimming. Can you imagine be, being shipwrecked? You're in the midst of the sea of whatever, Galilee, the Mediterranean, whatever sea you're in the midst of, your, your ship goes down on, the, on your way to do God's work. And not only this, Paul caps all of this saying that he has the burden of apostolic oversight. That is, beyond all of these sufferings, he says he's constantly weighed down with trouble and concern in his heart for the sheep who are under his care. That is a remarkable suffering. That suffering is like the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. But what did Paul say? He says, I, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What at all could he be meaning? How at all uh, does Paul rejoice in this sense that he's filling up what is lacking? What's lacking? I heard, I don't know if, if you heard this, but according to Paul, Jesus Christ is the preeminent being. Uh, he, he is beyond anything in creation. He is infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious and beautiful, eternally existent with the Father from all time past. And Paul says, I'm filling up what's lacking. What's lacking in the cross of Christ? Didn't Paul just say that the reconciliation came about when Jesus was on the cross? How then is there something yet to be done? The only thing that can be considered to be lacking in the sufferings of Christ is they haven't yet been proclaimed and heralded to everyone everywhere. Jesus Christ died in Jerusalem, and that gospel message which took place in those regions now has to be spread to all areas of the world. That's what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, Paul gives a summary of his efforts and the end goal, or the, as I said earlier, the eschatological end to all of this. Where is this all going? Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone to escape wrath, it's inferred, 
and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Remember how earlier the, the whole theme of this sermon has been God not only created mankind through the prototype of Jesus Christ, but also all those who obtain resurrection to life everlasting do so through Jesus Christ. The end goal is not just that you will die and go to heaven. The end goal is that you would be a mature representation of Jesus Christ walking on this earth, affecting change throughout all of your world. Just as Paul had to go to different cities in antiquity, different regions uh, of Rome and, and the different cities of those days, we too have to go into the realms which we walk in. God who created man in his, in his image and has redeemed man after his pattern desires them to have full maturity after their elder brother. And Paul, in the midst of this huge theology, is able to find joy in these sufferings because he knows that he's been invited by God to become a participant in the unfolding of salvation to everyone. What a glorious calling we have as believers. The calling on Paul is the same as the calling on you and I. We are to go through life and bring the message of salvation and reconciliation, proclaiming peace to all who would hear. And in those times in our life where we are both persecuted and in those times when, when we have just easy, receptive hearers of the gospel, in those times we have to have the anchor of our life, not in our performance, not in our circumstances, because those often look bleak, but in the truth of what has really taken place. God has passed heaven and earth to come and get you. And in that, we glory in the midst of our sufferings. Like Paul did, we can only do this if our eyes are caught up with the glory of the person and work of Jesus in order to live the life of faith by the power of God. I want you to notice the end of this chapter. Paul says, for this, for what? for the mature presentation, for, for all my brothers and sisters to be free from the sins that entangle them, to be full of the knowledge of the glory of God, to be full of love for their fellow man, doing justice, not swindling and cheating and stealing and destroying, but rather building up and sacrificing and redeeming and restoring and giving life to procreation that is God participating in the creative works of God by bringing human, more humans into existence. The whole life, all of our life is concerned with this. And Paul says, for this, that there would be mature Christians, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For Paul, the energy to go through these sufferings and to keep going does not come from himself. It is not his own determination to do better or try harder or not cry as much when he's being beaten or, or what have you. For Paul, all of the energy that is for him to, to go through these sufferings is being worked in him by God. And so we must hear this message to go through suffering, to persevere through suffering, not as a moral injunction to just try harder, do better, read our Bibles more, fast more, pray more, but rather to cease from sourcing our energy from ourself and putting all our trust in the God who faithfully supplies everything in the need of the moment. Amen. Let's pray.